Have you ever heard, heard this slogan, you only go around once in life, so go for the gusto? You ever heard that? It's a sad, sad slogan, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever really thought about that slogan. Does it really match up with Scripture? Does it match up with the way God thinks or not? And if you focus on you, which is what they're doing there in that slogan, aren't they? You only go around once in life, so go for the gusto. So it's all about you, right? That's A lot of slogans are that way. And so if you, if you focus on you, which it does, and if it's focusing on now, which it does, doesn't that make that a winning advertisement? That's a winning advertisement for whoever came up with that. There's a lot of slogans that are similar to this, and it's it's quite a common thing. If you if you just if you walk through life with the the biblical worldview, a Bible view, if you will, if you have Bible glasses on as you walk around our city, you'll notice uh, a lot of unbiblical stuff. All right. For example, where would you see this slogan? You tell me. Where do you see this slogan? You deserve a break today at. McDonald's. Yes. You deserve a break today at McDonald's. Again, where's the focus? On you, on now. Here's another one. Where's this one come from? Quench your thirst. You you talk about that long enough, you're going to start salivating, right? You're going to get thirsty, right? Quench your thirst. Whose advertisement is that? It's Gatorade. Here's another one. Whose advertisement is this? Have it your way. BK, or what you might call Burger King, right? Again, have it your way. It's all about you. Focus on you now. Got to have it now. Here's another one. This one isn't food. Whose advertisement is just do it? Nike, which, by the way, is a Greek word, Nike. (laughs) Interesting word. Just do it. Again, it's, it's on you. The focus is now. And all of those are unbiblical, <laughs> sadly. These slogans capture in a few words kind of some of the dominant ideas in our world today, which, of course, is individualism and self-indulgence. And sadly, even amongst Christians, even within the greater church, the worship of God is in great danger of being drowned out by the worship of self-esteem and our felt needs. By the way, try to find self-esteem in the Bible. You won't find those words. But can you even find that philosophy in the Bible? Self-esteem is just, it's like everywhere. You know, it's, it's like one of mankind's greatest problems these days. But can you find that philosophy in the Bible? Search for it. See if you can find it. So how about you? How about you? The danger of being in the world is we become like the world. Jesus said to be in the world, just don't be of the world. So you have to try to breathe a different air, if you will, as you're in this world. So I ask, how about you? Why do you come to church? Is church about you? Church about now, an individual thing? Is it is it all about your self-esteem and your felt needs, or is is there a different reason why we should be coming to church? 
What do you think the use of church is anyway? Well, those are important questions, very important questions. Fortunately, the first letter that was written to the church at Corinth helps to answer those questions. Who is the human author of, that the Holy Spirit used to write this book? Well, if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, you have your answer. The first word is Paul. Paul. Apostle Paul is the human author the Holy Spirit used to write this first book to the church at Corinth. You'll see a map up here on the screen in case you're geographically challenged and you don't know where Corinth is. You can see it's uh, what used to be called Achaia. Not far from Sparta and not far from Athens. So obviously in modern day Greece. So it's kind of in between Athens and Sparta. Paul founded the church there in Corinth. Of course, that's why his name's mentioned there in verse 1. He knew this church very well because when you read Acts chapter 18, it says Paul spent an entire year and a half at Corinth. He labored there trying to establish and strengthen this church. Of course, Paul couldn't stay there for his entire life, so he eventually left, and he ended up finding out about all kinds of problems. (laughs) Uh, After he left, there was all kinds of problems. It seems like it's not the case, but it almost seems like every single chapter there's a new issue that Paul had to address. So I thought about, as we think about the big picture of 1 Corinthians, I thought about addressing every little single issue that Paul does. But as I thought more about that, well, I couldn't really do it justice. It's probably not the best way to get the big picture of this book. By the way, if you want an interesting overview, go to YouTube and type in Bible Project. Bible Project's doing the different books of the Bible, and they've done one on 1 Corinthians. So uh, I thought about doing it kind of like what they do, but I decided against that. So I think, I think what we're going to do today is going to be more helpful to you, kind of uh, shrinking it down and summarizing it for you, looking at the various themes here. So the point of Paul's letter is a very important one that we need to hear today. This is a relevant book, even though it's an old book, It is still relevant for us today, and Paul's writing to teach the Corinthians about the church. They had a lot of problems, a lot of misunderstandings, and particularly Paul discusses what should characterize the church and why these particular characteristics must typify the church. And by the way, they're the same ones that should typify our church or any church you you attend. So, You might ask the question, well, okay, what should characterize the church? I'm glad you asked, because Paul answers that question here in 1 Corinthians. Number one, we see the church is to be holy. Holy. Church is to be holy. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth... To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Jump down to verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? There are other characteristics that help 
define what Paul means by the word holy. You'll see that word a few times throughout this book. But what does holy really mean? The Bible says God's holy. We're commanded to be holy. But what does that really mean? There's a lot of confusion on that. So we'll look at this book here in a few lights and see what that means. First of all, being holy means being strange. Did you know that? (laughs) Yeah, it means being strange. Just hang with me here. We'll see what the scripture says. But the Christian message is a different message from the world's message. And when you have a different message from the world, that immediately makes you strange, at least to the world's eyes. Christian wisdom is different from the world's wisdom, and Paul talks about that here in verse 21. Look what he says, verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. (laughs) The world calls that folly. To God it's wisdom. So why do Christians appear foolish to the world? Why should Christians appear foolish to the world? Look at chapter 2, verse 14. 2, verse 14. Here's your answer. The natural person or the unsaved person in their natural state does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, an unsaved person who does not know Christ as Savior and Lord, can't understand the Bible. They have an unregenerate heart that needs to be changed before they can understand the things of God. So, being holy means being strange. Number two, being holy means being special. It's strange, but it's also special. For example, look in chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. By the way, you'll see the pronoun you. You don't pick this up in the English, per se, but in the Greek language, you is plural. In other words, Paul's talking about the church. The church is the you here, so keep that in mind as we read verse 16. Do you, the church, not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is, what? Holy, and you are that temple. The church is to be holy. That's something very, very special. So number three, being holy means being pure. Being pure. You probably usually think of it that way. So being pure, and chapter 5 is, a, is an illustration of this, if you will. It addresses an issue that was taking place in the church at Corinth. Hopefully you're familiar with chapter 5. There was, uh, sadly, there was a man in the church who was sleeping with his father's wife. That's kind of the politically correct way of saying it. So this was his stepmother, his father's wife, and the church wasn't even troubled by the scandal that was taking place in the church. And we'll read Paul's response here in chapter 5, verse 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 5, because Paul says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. In other words, they're boasting. They were proud. They didn't seem to really care that this guy's sleeping around with his father's wife. 
So your boasting's not good, he says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So why does the church need to be warned about this? The church should be warned. Well, the answer to that Paul gives there in verse 6 is that sin spreads. Sin is like putting yeast into a, a, a ball of dough. It affects the entire lump of dough. It affects other people, in other words. And so their tolerance undermines the very life of the church. It was killing, their, their, their tolerance of sin was killing their church. It's as if the, the body's immune system were failing. If you think of, think of it like a cancer, if, it, if you will, the cancer is affecting very, eventually it can spread through your whole body and kill you. And, and that's kind of what was happening here. And when that happens, death is something that's going to happen very soon. And you say, well, what's the solution? Well, it's not a pleasant one, but look what Paul says in verse 7. Verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, or Christian if you will, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So what's Paul's solution? What's the Holy Spirit's solution? <clears throat> well, if you look at verse 13, here's what God says. He, he says, God judges those outside. In other words, outside the church, God judges them. But inside the church, look what God says in verse 13. He says, purge the evil person from among you. Purge them. Cut them off. Cast them away. Why does Paul say that? Well, there's four reasons in the text why the Holy Spirit would tell us to do this with this kind of a person. And in verse 5, the first answer is that man's spirit, that this man's spirit may be saved. Paul told this church to do this for this man's sake. He needed to repent of his sin. He, he was headed for an eternal damnation away from God in hell. This man needed desperate help. Number two, the whole process of discipline here is meant as a warning to the people in the church. It was meant as a warning. Sadly, many of them were boasting. They weren't dealing with the sin. So this was meant as a warning. And number three, discipline preserves the purity and the witness of the church. Because sadly, even unbelievers were looking at the situation and saying, hey, this is not good. Even the unbelievers didn't agree with this. So they were destroying the purity of Christ's witness to the world here. And then number four, for the sinner who will not repent, discipline bring, will help bring repentance. So if he's not listening to the church, the last step of Matthew 18 is then excommunication. He's to be cast out 
delivered over to Satan so that Satan can work on him, (laughs) then maybe he'll come to repentance. So my friends, you need to understand something here. This is terrible, isn't it? But holiness is essential to the church's existence. It's an attribute, yes. It's a trademark. It should be something that's common. It should be typical in the church. And so when someone thinks of the church, thinks of your church, what should they think? Well, they should think a holy community. They should look at us and any other Christian church and say, that is a holy community. And by the way, that doesn't mean that uh, we're, we're a bunch of self-righteous people. Okay, That's not the right picture here. But what it does mean is that we're, we are a community that's holding out something to this world. We're, what are we holding out? We're holding out a better way of living to a world that needs it. So the church is to be holy. That's the first point. So what should characterize our church and any other church? We're to be holy. Number two, the church is to be united. Okay, These are all in the text. Okay, These aren't things I'm making up. This is God's emphasis here. This church was not united. If you know anything about the church at Corinth, uh, they, they had a lot of problems with unity. And uh, that's not surprising, because what did we just see in chapter 5? We saw a church tolerating sin. And whenever a church tolerates sin, problems with unity are inevitably going to follow. You cannot be united when sin is tolerated. So from the very beginning, Paul appeals for unity, and you can see this in chapter 1, verse 10. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Oh, yeah? I follow Apollos. Oh, yeah? I follow Christ. No, sorry, the next one's Cephas. In other words, Peter. Okay, you follow Paul, I follow Peter, and then the trump card is pulled out. Oh, yeah? I follow Christ. (laughs) Oh, silly, isn't it? We do this too, by the way. So don't don't get self-righteous here. We do the same sort of things. So they, they were not united. Paul talks about that, doesn't he? So the separation the Corinthians are supposed to experience is a separation from the world. Not from each other, but from the world. So instead, they're tolerating sin, and so they encourage internal division. So Paul issues a stern rebuke in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. A very stern rebuke, because he says, "...for you are still of the flesh." For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Hello? Rhetorical question. What's the answer? The answer is yes. They were responding in a very sinful, fleshly way. By the way, when churches divide for carnal reasons like this, 
what are they identifying themselves with? Because you will always identify yourself with someone or something. You will. But what were they identifying themselves with? What does any church identify themselves with if they're dividing for, for carnal reasons? Well, it's not Christ. And so, I'll just give you some examples, because maybe the, what you see in chapter 1 is not an issue with you. There are churches who identify with modern music. So we get these music wars going on. So that becomes their identity. We're the church of modern music. And there ends up being church splits over music. And if they don't have a split, what, what you sometimes see on the church signs is, hey, come early on Sunday, you can have the traditional music. And if you come later on Sunday, you can have the, the, the CCM kind of a music. So they've divided for carnal reasons. Some people become the church of the famous pastor, the celebrity pastor. That's a carnal reason. I've even known some who become the church of homeschoolers. We're the clique of homeschoolers. And if, if you dare send your kid anywhere else, well, you're a pagan. Don't come to our church. Number four, another one is some become the, the church of some political party. You know, only, only Christians support this political group. Really? Or, or they might become the, the church of the, the beautiful building, right? The, the crystal cathedral or whatever it is, okay? Right? That's the wrong identity. The church is not a building. Church is not a political party. It's not a group of homeschoolers. It's not a celebrity pastor. And it's not music. And the list could go on and on. You get the point? Those are all carnal reasons. Instead, they ought to be identifying themselves with Christ. And when we look to Christ, then there can be unity. And by the way, as soon as that happens, then you're no longer the church of Jesus Christ. You become the church of something else. And all Christian churches should reflect the unity of Christ. And how do you do that, by the way? You reflect Jesus Christ through the unity that you have with each other. So the church is to be unified. And number three, Number three, the church is to be loving. Love is talked a lot about in, in this book. For example, in chapters 8 through 14, it teaches that love for others is something that should govern what we do in the church. I'll just give you an example to start with. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. What, what starts this whole section off here. Look at chapter 8, verse 1, because it says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What builds up? Love builds up. In chapter 8, Paul teaches that love should determine the Christian's use of various freedoms or liberties. So they're, they're it doesn't mean you can just go do whatever you want. There's limits within your Christian liberty. In chapter 9, Paul discusses his own example there. We don't have time to, to read all these chapters, so let me just give you a quick overview here. He's discussing his own example, and he says, I didn't get married. Why? Why didn't Paul get married? So that he could be of greater service to the church. That doesn't mean it's wrong to get married, but he just... He just says that was what he did. 
And then in chapter 10, Paul tells them to be mindful of what is beneficial to other people. Be mindful of other people. Look to other people's needs so you can build them up. Chapter 11, Paul rebukes them for their very unloving behavior when it came to the Lord's table. When they were having communion together, they weren't loving each other. So Paul addresses that. And then in chapter 12, Paul tells them that God's given spiritual gifts to Christians in the church. And they're, what are those spiritual gifts for? For the building up of the body, for each other. And then in chapter 13, hopefully you know that chapter, Paul teaches that love should be at the very heart of our actions. Love's at the heart. And then in chapter 14, Paul says that whatever builds up the whole church is far better than what merely builds up an individual. The church is more important than you. So my friends, you need to remember something. Only love will establish the kind of unity that should mark the church. Love marks the church. So when two disagreeing sisters or brothers, who, by the way, concur on the church's essentials, agree to set aside those disagreements, and then they choose to work together despite those disagreements, what's happening? They're demonstrating a love for the other over themselves, aren't they? Yeah. And that love displays something to a watching world. Yes, you are free to make a decision according to your own preferences. Sometimes our preferences become essentials, though. We need to watch out for that. But remember Paul's instruction here. Look at chapter 8, verse 9. Chapter 8, verse 9. Paul says, But take care that this right, this Christian liberty of yours, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You see that? There is something more important than your Christian liberty, than your right. You can't just do whatever you want. And say, what's the point here? What's the point? Well, other Christians can be hurt by our actions. And even the Bible goes on to say, other Christians, other people can be destroyed by our actions, by your exercise of personal preference. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Do you see that? You can destroy another Christian through your Christian liberty. Well, Paul states his principle of love quite clearly in chapter 10. Look at verse 24. Chapter 10, verse 24. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. So again, is it all about you? <laughs> is it all about, you know, go for the gusto. You you deserve a break today. Have it your way. Is, is that the emphasis that we're seeing here? No. No. Not about you, but the good of your neighbor. By the way, I hope you understand neighbor there is not just the person who lives next to you. Okay, it's anyone whom you come in contact with. And so Paul characterizes love quite well. If you're you're not familiar with love, you need to study chapter 13. Look at chapter 13, verse 4. Verse 4. So Paul tells us what love isn't, and he also tells us what love is. These are the characteristics that should characterize you and us corporately. 
chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And then as we move on to chapter 14, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to follow this way of love. Look what he says in verse 1. Verse 1 he says, pursue love. Pursue love. (laughs) In other words, chase it down like you're hunting an animal. And you want that animal. Chase it down. Get it. Don't let it get away from you. What's the application here? Well, there's much that we could say, but just think about this. When was the last time that you attended church for the purpose of edifying other people? Ooh, boy, that hurts. I know. (laughs) Why do you attend church? Is it all about you? So you can have it your way? Because you deserve a break today? Is that, is that, you know, go, I'm going for the gusto? Is that why you attend church? Or is it about other people and not your felt needs? Are, are, do you attend so that I can have my self-esteem built up? Is that, all, is that what it's about? For a lot of people it is. Those are all the wrong purposes. So I ask again, when was the last time you attended church for the purpose of building others up? If that's not why you come to church, you need to come to church with that in mind. Come to church thinking, I'm going to minister to at least one other person today. I'm going to do what I can to help them. Setting my needs aside. Do you usually attend just to have your needs met? Well, a lot of people do. It's all about their felt needs. Well, that's not what church is about. I encourage you, think of other people as you come to a church service. Well, that brings up a, another important question. We've seen some characteristics that should characterize a church. But you say, okay, that, that's all very nice. Why should I do that? Why should I do that? Why should the church typify the characteristics of holiness, unity, and love? Well, the short answer is, <laughs> here's the short answer. The church should be reflecting the character of God. I hope you know that God is holy, God is united, and that God is love. He's all of those things and more, but because that is who God is, you and I should be declaring His glory to this world. We're to be holy and united and loving because God is holy, one, and loving. Look what Paul says in chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Of course, Christ is holy, one, and love. Paul's striving to imitate Christ to the world. and He's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. So clearly God intends to display His own reflection. How's He going to do that? Because He's spirit. You can't see God. So how how is... God then it going to be declared to the world through us, through believers, through Christians, through His church. 
So let's look at each one of these points separately, and we'll see it here in the text. Number one, the church is to be holy because God is holy. That's why you're to be holy. That's why you're commanded to be holy. Peter says, be holy. Why? Because God is holy. So how is the church to be holy? And is that even possible? (laughs) The answer is yes, it is possible to be holy because God has declared the church holy in Jesus. Look at chapter 1. We already read this earlier, but look look at this. Chapter 1, verse 2. Look at the state here in in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified is kind of a synonym of the word holy. Sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So is that possible? Through Jesus it is. (laughs) So the holiness of the church begins with the holiness of God, doesn't it? Because you and I can't be holy unless He, first of all, is holy. Now look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. Which says, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Wow. So our holiness comes from the one who is holy. He's the one who purchased us. He's the one who indwells us through His Spirit. And He calls us to be holy. So I hope you understand what the Scripture is saying here. Our holiness is actually God's holiness that He has imparted to us. It's our only hope of being holy. Number two, the church is to be united because God is united. In other words, God is one. One God in three persons. Those three persons are fully and totally united to each other. No division at all within them. Now look what the Bible says here in chapter 8, verse 6. Chapter 8, verse 6. I'm not just making this up. It's in the text. (laughs) Chapter 8, verse 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. But this God, who is one, there's also the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. They are fully, totally united. Do you realize what that verse says? The life of the church depends entirely upon God in Christ, who is one. The only hope that church can be united. And then in chapter 12, Paul relates the oneness of the Trinity. So look at chapter 12. This is a wonderful picture here. He's relating the the unity of the Trinity that should be shown through our spiritual gifts. Chapter 12, verse 4. Now these, now, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now jump down to verse 11. All these, these spiritual gifts, are empowered by one and the same Spirit 
who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So my friends, if we're Christians, if you're a Christian, you the Bible says you have God's Spirit in you. He indwells you. That He comes within you to reside within you at the moment of your salvation. When you put your faith and your trust and your belief in Christ alone, God the Holy Spirit comes in and indwells you. And the Spirit gives each of us, the Bible says, gifts, these spiritual gifts, for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, His church. And that's supposed to bring unity. And in the process, our oneness then is going to reflect God, because He is also one. What does disunity in the church show? Well, disunity, of course, is the opposite of oneness or unity. Well, disunity then is saying the opposite about God. It's saying that the Trinity is not united, that they're divided. And of course, that's not true, because there's only one God. Now, how do we lose our unity? How can any church lose their unity? How did this church lose its unity? Look at chapter 3. Here's one of the ways this happened to the church at Corinth. Ultimately, it's because of sin, all right? But one of the problems the church at Corinth had is they lost their unity through a wrong loyalty. Instead of identifying their loyalty to Christ, their loyalty went to human leaders. People like Paul and Peter, Apollos. So look what Paul says here. Chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4 says this, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. My friends, if you attend this church, or if you attend any church... (laughs) Because of the one who is doing the preaching, you have a wrong motivation. Now, that might sound weird because I'm the one usually doing the preaching, right? A lot of, there, there are some pastors and preachers who would never say that. They love the attention. <laughs> they love that attention. But I am not being submissive and loyal to the chief shepherd. All I am is his under-shepherd. God has given me a flock that I am to shepherd. And if I try to subvert his leadership, his authority, as the the good chief shepherd, then I'm not doing the job that he has given to me. I'm to point you to the, the good shepherd. You're not to be looking at me. You're not to be looking at any preacher. It's not about them. The reality is, by the way, every pastor is going to disappoint you because they're sinners. I will disappoint you because I am a sinner. And so if you look to me, then you're going to be disappointed then, aren't you? True faith is built up 
or is built upon God in Jesus Christ. Well, let's move on. Last point. We see the church is to be loving. Why? Why should you be loving? Because God is love. So at the center of our heart should be love for God. That's why we do what we do. Our love for Him is just merely, by the way, it's just merely a response to His love for us. We love Him, the Bible says, because He first loved us. By the way, notice how Paul rebukes the Corinthians in chapter 8, verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 11. He says, So by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against who? Christ. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So what is Paul saying there? If you've treated a brother or sister in Christ in an unloving way, then you have literally sinned against Jesus Christ. He died for that person. How dare you make them stumble in sin? So my friends, the church is then to be a display of something here. We are to be a mirror displaying God's love in a world that is messed up, isn't it? Very little love. So what do we, what do we do? What do we do? Let me ask you this. Are you doing that? Are you displaying God's love, God's unity to this world? Does our church display the love of God to the world around us? Is that what we're doing? We should be. We need to do some hard examination here then, don't we? Let me just wrap this up as we think about this. Uh, let me ask you a question. What is the use of the church? What is the use of the church? Corinthians helps us to understand the use of the church, and the answer is this. To show the world the character of God. You're to be showing the world the character of God. And if you want to help with living that out, you've got to realize that how you relate to the church says something. How you relate to the church says something about your relationship with God. How else is the world going to know God? 1 Corinthians 10, by the way, verse 31, really provides a good summary verse for this entire letter. I hope you're familiar with this. Chapter 10, verse 31. Which says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the church's purpose. You're to display God's glory. All of His majesty, His character, His essence, His nature to this world. This is what God calls us to do. And by the way, there is no room for boasting on our part. There's no room for pride in any of this. Because look what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 28. Chapter 1, verse 28 says this, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You're to bring Him honor and glory, not bringing it to yourself. So instead of boasting, then what are we supposed to do? We're to be consumed with God's glory. We're to be consumed in serving Him. 
Everything else is futile. Look at chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 19. Chapter 15, verse 19 says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if you have built your Christian life around what you can get out of it, or what you can get in this life, if it's all about you going for the gusto and you know, you deserving a break today and having it your way and just doing it and whatever other slogan you want to throw in there, if that's what it's all about, you've missed the whole thing. You have. It's our destiny to reflect God. If you don't believe me, look at verse 48. Chapter 15, verse 48 says, As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. <laughs> so, My friends, do you want to glorify God? I hope you do. Do you wish to give the right opinion of God to the world around you? By the way, that's, that's just another way of, of saying glorifying God. Giving the right opinion of God to the world. Well, if you do, then you have to understand that God's glory is going to be displayed in the church through our lives, through how we interact with one another. Are we holy? Are we unified? Are we displaying God's love? That's what our church is devoted to. And the question is, is that what you're devoted to? 